welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and with me today is the Chief Executive Officer of Lanza Tech, Jennifer Holmgren. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. So I'm going to go right into the questions that I have for you. And we'll start with sort of the basics. For the listeners, especially consumers who may be listening to this podcast who may not be so familiar with Lanzatech, can you talk about what Lanzatech does? And we'll start from there. Lanzatech as a company is focused on gas fermentation. So what we do is we convert waste gases, just like bacteria and yeast convert sugar, and we convert those to ethanol. So instead of using sugar, we have a bacteria that makes ethanol from waste gas emissions. And these emissions are often found at industrial sites like steel mills, which are very rich in emissions that contain carbon monoxide refineries that have carbon monoxide, hydrogen and carbon monoxide, and chemical plants. So these are the emissions that we convert to ethanol. So I've heard you often talk about single-use carbon and the need to transition to carbon reuse and carbon recycling and being, you know, carbon smart. So um, what do you mean by that, especially for listeners who may not be so familiar with the use of those terms. I just I think they're just incredibly important because I think that's where we need to be going here. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you know, if if you take the view that what we need to do is keep fossils in the ground, then extending the life, shall we say, of carbon is super important. So today we tend to make products from fossil carbon and in fact most of the products, whether it be power, fuel production, or all the chemicals in your home like carpet fibers and yoga pants and everything else are made from fossil-derived carbon. But in general, what happens is it starts life as a fossil, comes out of the ground, goes into a product, and then immediately goes into the atmosphere after we're done with it. And so what we keep trying to say is that there needs to be carbon recycling In as much as possible, we need to be able to take carbon and instead of letting it go out of flu, give it another chance at life, give it another use. And the reason this is important is because every time we do that, every time we recycle that carbon, that's another carbon that stays in the ground. And the goal is to keep as much carbon in the ground as possible. So this is this is something we're super focused on is how do we extend the life? So if, if, if I were to use the example of a steel mill, right, the a steel mill uses coke to make steel. It's not using the coke for power generation. It's using it to make steel. After it goes through a reduction process, carbon monoxide comes off. That carbon monoxide can either be used for power production or just literally goes out the flue. What we do is we take that carbon We recycle it and make ethanol out of it. That ethanol can be used in your car. We have technology that we developed with Pacific Northwest National Lab to take that ethanol and convert it to jet fuel so that we can use it in aviation. 
And the other thing we can do with that is take ethanol and use it as an intermediate, right? Ethanol to ethylene, and then you can use it just like you do ethylene to make polyethylene, to make MEG, to make anything that normally comes from ethylene. So these types of approaches that recycle carbon, we believe are super important. I would say one more thing, if I may. I know this is a long, long wind. We also believe that one of the things that's super important is to get away from using carbon in power production. We read this in your newsletters and in your analysis, and we read it. We can really see a tremendous movement in terms of, of renewable power introduction, right? The levelized cost of electricity in most jurisdictions in using solar or wind is about the same as using coal or even natural gas. And as long as that's the case, then we ask ourselves the question, why waste a fossil molecule on power production? Why waste the carbon at all on power production? Some of these gases that we use at Lanzapet are sometimes used for power or heat production, and that's great. It's better than letting them go to waste, but we would argue that let's start making chemicals and fuels out of them and let power come from renewable resources. So do you think that that, you know, I mean, a few years ago, I would say even five years ago, maybe less than five years ago, no one was really, I mean, except for Lanzac and maybe some a few others, no one was really talking about this concept of carbon recycling. And it seems like there is certainly more attention and uh, support uh, of, the, of that and the technologies that are doing that now. Would you say that true in the experience of Lanzatech, our, our government, other stakeholders like the environmental community, very, very important, sort of waking up uh, to this fact? Um, are you, does Lanzatech experience that? I think this is actually a very important point that you bring up. I would say over the last five years, there's been a transition to talking about carbon efficiency in some ways, right? And mm-hmm. carbon right. recycling, right? And so right. people are starting to actually talk about it. And I would say that you see it actually now. So first of all, I would say that trees and plants are carbon recyclers, right? And so the world kind of focused on talking about biological, you know, biofuels, bioproducts as having come only from trees. And so what I would say is what the world is saying now is trees are great and are important in recycling carbon, but we need technologies that can do this, right? And so Mm -hmm. you're starting to see people talk about recycling carbon. And it turns out that if you look at the REB2, which I know you've analyzed, the REB2 actually uses recycled carbon fuels, right? They talk explicitly as recycled carbon fuels. Exactly. And so, so if you think about it, right, that says, wait a second, we need to give these guys some type of equal basis because whether it's done by a plant or whether it's done by a technology, biological or otherwise, the reality is this gets us to what we want, which is recycling carbon and keeping it out of the air. And and so to me, that was huge recognition. The other thing you're seeing, of course, is 45Q in the United States, right? 
carbon mm-hmm. capture and reuse legislation. So I think the the world and governments are realizing that there are many ways to be successful in reducing carbon emissions and that recycling carbon needs to have a seat at the table, needs to be treated on an equal footing as other approaches that were, I would say, more traditional, more established. I see less black and white. I see, uh, you know, it's, it's, I see um, maybe more, you know, progressive in terms of, you know, including these technologies in the, in the different legislation that you mentioned. But I also, we know that, you know, we need to get to 2C. We need to get to 1.5C, but we're kind of headed to 3C. But I also think governments are, you know, we're not going to just go from A to Z overnight. So we need transitional uh, new technologies. We need transitional technologies. We need to make technologies that we have better. And I do see a little more um, realism happening, you know, instead of, you know, one time a client told me he was at a conference one time with aviation. I think this is a really great example. And he was on a panel and uh, another advocate said, well, you know, people should just stop flying. And that should, you know, and there, there's our carbon yeah. reduction, which, yeah. you know, yeah. quite, quite honestly is, I mean, it's kind of true. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, people in the West, I think we'll get that because travel is, is, you know, cumbersome, as you very well know, and uh, people want quality of life, and people, I think, are beginning to think about carbon, um, you know, the usage when it comes to air travel, and there are other ways, uh, you know, video, you know, technology has come a long way so that people can connect virtually, but, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the case, you know, in, in the East, and um, I know that you, Lanza Tech, and others within Lanza Tech have spent an enormous amount of time in Asia, so uh, for example, where demand for everything is increasing, demand for you know passenger cars, heavy duty, marine mm-hmm. aviation, yeah, yeah. you name it. So that's not really you know that that stopping travel is part of it, but it's not you know the the only solution. But I think the right. governments are seeing that, and there's more of a realism um, there than than maybe what was displayed at that that particular yeah. conference. I agree. And actually, I, I do think that there's, there's a happy medium. And I think one of the things that, and this is in part why we talk about being carbon smart. I think there are things that people can do now and look for in the future to do that allow carbon reductions. And we don't need, I, I realize the problem is urgent. Please don't get me wrong. I, I think mm-hmm. it's even way more urgent than, than people believe, even the people who are afraid, I think it's even way more urgent than that. I would say, though, that we have to continue to be able to live a life, right? I mean, I don't think we're going to go into some big austerity measure and we're going to tell kids who now, for example, do programs where they can go to college abroad and things like that, that, well, sorry, we don't have enough emissions to allow you to get on a plane and do this, right? I think technology can help us get past that. I think governments can help us push technologies across the value of death. I think legislation can help incentivize getting some of these technologies in place. And we as consumers can also make a difference, right? You know, why aren't we getting on a train or a bus when we can? Why aren't we getting up in the morning and remembering that, you know, before we leave for work or whatever, we leave that hotel room, 
we need to turn out the lights. I mean, every little thing, you know, unplugging the brick for your iPad every day, even that saves energy, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think we need to become conscious of what we do in terms of saving where we can so that we don't get to the point where all of a sudden it's catastrophic and we have to make these sacrifices of, no, we're not going to ever get on a plane again or, or whatever yeah. the answer is. You know what I mean? I, I think we can be smarter than this problem, but we need to be thinking about it consciously. So I want to go to a to a comment because since we're we're sort of uh, talking about this, I want to go to a comment that you made recently in a recent talk, and you say that's that's right along the lines of what we're talking about. You said recently, in order to succeed in decarbonizing our economy, we will need the commitment of large companies and governments from around the world to ensure carbon reuse is part of the solution. So my question is, you know, even even in light of what we were just talking about, you know, with the legislative packages and governments beginning to wake up, and, and I could even argue embrace the notion and the concept of carbon re- recycling. Do you feel like governments are doing, you know, enough? Should they be doing more? And what about um, industry? Or do you see this as more of a, a situation that will, you know, there's momentum, there, there will continue to be growth, and there will continue to be evolution? This is a, a really great question, and, and I'm going to say as a high level, my answer is, my view is that both governments and industry are doing quite a bit, but it's, it's not enough, okay? So let me take a step back and elaborate on that, because I do think it's an important discussion point. For example, I do see a lot of government movement to saying every technology that can contribute has a seat at the table. Low carbon fuel standards, a perfect example of that. We just talked about carbon recycling being part of RED2 in Europe. We just talked about 45Q in the US. So I think governments are starting to do what they can to reduce carbon emissions and to say we will take any solution that helps us reduce carbon quickly and let it contribute. We're not going to use definitions to exclude ideas or concepts. I also see industry really taking a very active role. If you look at the B team, for example, and you see commitments to being 100% renewable electricity by a certain time period, you also see consumer-facing brands like Unilever, Danone, and IKEA, Coke, Pepsi, all of these folks making commitments to reduce carbon emissions. So I think everybody is talking about it. Most of the leaders, most of the, the people that will spearhead movements talking about it. And so I want to congratulate everybody to start with because I think this is a big difference over five years ago. Oh, My definitely. Year, though, yeah, yeah. But I'm still afraid. You and I were talking, I think you, you made a comment about, you know, people wanted to be a one and a half and we're headed to three or four. I think we're headed to three yeah. or four if we're lucky. I think it's much worse than that. And what really scares me is that people are making commitments, but these commitments are not enough. I hear people talk about, okay, we're going to surpass these numbers, but then we're going to come back and reduce them afterwards. And we'll have some carbon negative technologies that will help. You know, it really scares me, right? Because extinction is forever, right? Once, yeah. once we killed off a species, we're not getting it back, even if we reduce carbon afterwards. Plus, also, there's a long 
time from the time that you introduce the carbon into the atmosphere to the time that it equilibrates and has the impact, right? The negative impact. So it's almost, I feel like you can't take it back. I feel like we have to just get really, really aggressive now. And so to me, that means that instead of commitments, and I see a lot of great commitments, we need actions underneath that. And that needs to come from industry. I think a lot of industries that's made a commitment to 2030 target doesn't know how they're going to get there. I think they need to get much more active in pushing solutions and working with governments to push those solutions. I also think governments need to commit more funding to helping technologies get across the valley of death. I think it's really important to to help get to scale technologies as quickly as possible. It's okay to fail. You need to agree to that. What you need is to succeed or fail as quickly as possible so that you get yeah. as many technologies contributing as quickly as possible. This cannot be a serial exercise. It needs to be a very aggressive parallel exercise. So I'm happy to see all the progress, but boy, I sure hope we can do more and more and more because the level of suffering that we're inflicting both, I mean, on, on the planet, look at, look at what these hurricanes do to people. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. We, we got yep. to stop this. Got to stop it. You know, I mean, it is. It's so true. I, and I, I, I don't know if I could say I live at ground zero, but I certainly, I live at below zero, I guess. Definitely, <laughs> maybe at or below sea level. But yeah, I mean, I can really, I can really see it. And, you know, I think I, I've written about um, my own experience here that, you know, I think my neighbors would really take issue with me for this, but I question whether I will continue to live in Florida in my lifetime. And my husband and I debate this <laughs> quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I almost uh, had to reschedule this in- interview with you because my roof is finally being fixed from a hurricane that happened last year. I think people don't realize wow. the, yes, I mean, that's a year ago. And I think the, 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 the level of devastation, obviously in Puerto Rico, the, you know, gets a, gets a lot of attention. Yeah. And certainly we have the, the hurricane uh, Florence, um, which is happening now, you know, but there's still a lot of recovery, billions and billions of dollars uh, of recovery uh, money that is spent rebuilding and mitigating. I mean, and, and actually, you know, the damage could have been worse because there's there's actually quite a bit of mitigation. We don't call it that down here, but that's exactly what it is. So there's definitely, you know, in my own personal experience, I can see it. And I wonder, I can certainly, the state growing up here is a lot different today, just in 40 <laughs> you know, 45 years, it's changed enormously. So I think people think that that's a consciousness, I think, that, that or uh, education slash consciousness that needs to come into into play right down to the to the citizen and consumer level, which I think I think is beginning to happen, but maybe it's happened a little more slowly here <laughs> than, let's mm-hmm. say, in, in Europe or, you know, in, in other parts of the world. But yes, it is, there is tremendous, suffering happening, but we don't really talk about it in those terms, but maybe we should be talking about it in those terms. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about, about funding, you know, in terms of like a, a policy goal to sort of help advanced biofuels and advanced alternative fuels companies sort of bridge that uh, that valley of death. So I have two, two questions for you. Aside from, you know, maybe more R&D and, and more funding, are there other policies you know, in this sector that would, you know, continue to support the industries 
And my second question is, it seems like there's more, and maybe it's just me, but it seems like there's more optimism in this industry than there has been in past years. Are you observing that as well? And what's turning the tide here in terms of sort of like this this return to optimism? Or unless I'm wrong, you can tell me. (laughs) No, 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 no. So I actually agree with you that there is a bit of a return to optimism. And I think part of it is related to all the legislation. We're starting to see commitments at the city level. We're starting to see commitments at the national level that is allowing new technologies to have a seat at the table. So I think though that gives people optimism. They don't have to be focused on just one legislation that could hurt their ability to get into the market. So I think I think there's optimism because of all of the folks jumping in. Look at, you know, people who are working on jet fuel, right? ICAO is making great progress on the Corsia, on the legislation to to reduce carbon, right, in aviation. Mm-hmm. That's gotta give hope to all of the companies that are working on developing aviation fuels, low carbon aviation fuels. So I think all of those things give optimism. But I think the thing that gives the most optimism is I think we're seeing companies cross the valley of death. Okay. I think we're starting to see more and more companies successfully navigating across the valley of death. And so that tells other people, yeah, we can do that, right? Just a couple of days ago, um, United flew on Agrisoma mm-hmm. Fuel, you know, to Zurich from San Francisco, commitment at San Francisco, commitment to see a new uh, low-carbon feedstock commitment to see aviation jumping in, even though they know it's, it's currently a, a more expensive fuel. So I, I think when people see these stories that are real, I think, I think it helps all of us feel um, like we can do this. Um, so I, I think that's, that's I, I would say, the reason for optimism. More and more people are succeeding. More and more companies are crossing the valley. And so people know that it's possible. I would add one more thing that I think is is also helping. You said something about realism, and you were talking about it in regards to ways of life. But I think there's Uh also come a little bit of realism in what it takes to take a technology that is a process technology, a brand new process technology across the value of death. I think people realize it's not a five-year exercise, right? Lanza Tech, mm-hmm. as an example, been around for 13 years. We just built our first commercial plant that is now operating after 13 years. And I would say that's fast, okay? We had to raise $250 million to get to this point, okay? I think a lot of people didn't used to appreciate what it would take. And I do appreciate all of the technology work and all of the iterations in software and everything else, right, that are required to get across the valley of death and, and to have a commercializable product. And it's an order of magnitude different than what it takes to get a new process out there. And the amount of time it takes, I think people were making commitments to, okay, well, I'll just, you know, refurbish a plant and start it up on a brand new technology and realizing that was almost harder and starting from scratch, but, you know, they were trying to avoid the 12 month new compressor lead time. You know what I mean? Um, but instead ended up on a 12 month revamp after it didn't work out the first time, nothing wrong with what they tried to do. I'm not being critical. 
I'm only saying that they were not given the opportunity to say, it's going to take me five years to build the pilot and the demo. I can't commit to an exit now. These are things that I think people are learning, what it takes to get a process technology out there. So I think, I really do think that that also gives people hope is that now they can put together realistic business plans and people will fund them and people will fund them. I also think part of the dynamic here too is the more that I look at it and I've really tried to, you, you can see some of the, the reports that I've, I've put together clients to try and really not compare electrification from a one solution is better than the other. I am not saying that because I think we are going to have electrification in transport and perhaps other sectors as well. But I think when I look into the numbers, like, you know, the, the and I try, I've, I've tried to, um, you know, put together, you know, kind of comparison, like, well, what is, you know, it seems like, oh, 250 million, oh, it's, it's so much money. Well, you know, on the electrification side, you know, the auto industry spending, you know, $250 billion, you know, over the next five years. Governments are, have already spent, um, you know, $10 billion just on incentives. That doesn't even include infrastructure. So, you know, what seemed like maybe, you know, uh, 10 years ago, oh my gosh, this is so expensive. Why are we spending money on, you know, da, da, da. Well, you know, it's actually, <laughs> and I think IEA has actually come, come out with, with figures. It's like, well, you know, frankly, if we want to transform transport, which is, a, I think, one of the trickiest areas to decarbonize, you know, $250 million sounds like a lot. But when you compare it to those, you know, other figures, you know, it kind of sounds like a bargain. And it's, I don't know if you have a, <laughs> have a view on that, but there's, a, you know, it's like, a, I think what's happening here is, is perspective, um, perspective yeah. in terms of timing but also perspective in terms of spending. I mean, there's just no cheap deal um, when yeah. it comes to um, decarbonizing transport and allowing people mobility, getting them from point A to point Z and getting them around in the way that they want to go around, whether it's back to transport, public transport, or they're, or they're driving a car. So I don't know if you have a, have a view of that, yeah. but that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think you've captured it. You've captured it well that... People love silver bullets, right? And I think it's really easy to say, well, I've got this ideal solution. And I guarantee you that renewable power to electric vehicles that are piloted not by individuals who don't necessarily have a way of controlling their speed as well and, and everything else, right? That's the way to save, save energy long term and to do the right thing, right? Renewable power to electric vehicles. Love it. I think it's a great solution. Um, I think there are other solutions that are even harder, that are even better, right? Real mass transit in cities where it's not an individual, but um, that's also another another great solution. What scares me, though, is that all of these solutions skip over the 20 years between now and then when we need to reduce carbon emissions on today's conventional vehicles. I mm-hmm. think they're going to be here for quite a bit of time. And we can't just say we're going to wait for the silver bullet. We're going to get everybody an electric vehicle and do nothing between now and then or really not push hard between now and then, right? That's the scary part. And I think when we talk about electric vehicles, and I think you pointed it out as well, 
you know, there are other infrastructure problems that arise if we just get married to the idea of electric vehicles only, right? Where are all yes. the batteries going to come from? Where, where is all that metal going to be mined? How is it going to be mined? Is that ethical? Is that ethically mm-hmm. done? Um, you know, and, and instead, we just love to fall in love with the idea. And then the closer we get to an idea like we do with biofuels, the more of its problems we realize. There's nothing wrong with things that have problems. Realizing the problems and solving around them is actually what we're supposed to be doing rather than bouncing off to the next idea. That is actually what I consider problem. When, when I, I got both of my brothers, I don't drive, to, to buy Teslas. Okay. And people would tell me, Jennifer, doesn't that compete with ethanol? And what did you know? It doesn't. We want every solution. We want everything that can contribute and we need to incentivize new ideas. We need to popularize new ideas, but we cannot fall in love with one idea. It's not going to yeah. solve the problem. And anyway, that's my view, and and I think it's complementary to what you were saying. I agree with you on what it's going to cost and what it's going to pay. But more importantly, we just mentally have to be prepared to push as many ideas forward as we. Can. I agree, and um, you know uh, the, the the idea that we have, and, and we need to. As much as we fall in love with ideas, we need to be prepared to, you know, to either solve the problems around them or if they're just not workable, to not be attached. Like, well, you know, this or this may work in this particular situation with these particular dynamics and this particular population. Um, yeah. And uh, and then we move on to, uh, you know, sort of the, the next idea. I mean, and, and, and do it in a way that is inclusive. I have to say, sometimes I don't see that out there in the public domain or among some stakeholders. But then again, you know, there's lots of po- positive things happening. As we have a Renewable Energy Directive 2, as you point out, in Europe, you know, we also have an alternative fuel directive. So mm-hmm. we see, you know, governments, you know, in, in Europe, for example, in California, you know, we have a zero emission vehicle program, but we also have a low carbon fuels program. Um, exactly. So we see countries. Exactly. And, and then, of course, there's there's China. And I did want to ask you about, um, as uh, before we close, about what Lanzatech is doing in India and China. And I think China also is another good example um, where they have a, a new energy vehicle program. Um, you know, some of the provinces are, are doing methanol blending. You know, they're making the best use of their their resources. There's an ethanol uh, mandate coming into play. I said for many, many years um, that I thought China was doing more on um, advanced biofuels and advanced alternative fuels and arguably, you know, the United States, you know, and some uh, some other countries. I mean, this is a country that really is, um, you know, looking at all options, doing exactly, you know, what you just just talked about. Um, So I wanted to ask you, can you talk a little bit about what Lanzatech is doing in in India and China? And, um, you know, what is it it like working there? I mean, I think it's actually brilliant to pursue these markets because there are carbon issues. <laughs> the governments yeah. are open to all solutions. And it's an area where, you know, you're, we're going to see the most growth in transport in all sectors uh, in, the, in the coming years. So um, can, can you talk about that a little bit? So I agree with you that India and China are growing markets that are both committed 
to doing something about uh, carbon. And I would say that their approach, even though there are carbon trading markets as they relate to greenhouse gases, both of those countries are super focused on the well-being of their people in regards to pollution, in regards to particulates. And so the consumption, the burning of fossil fuels is important to them from a power and a fuel perspective in that it causes pollution. You know, strategies around what they would call blue sky are super important. And so I would say they come at it from a slightly different angle. Even though greenhouse gas and reducing greenhouse gases is important, I, I would say the talk among, you know, day-to-day talk is a little different. And mm-hmm. so I think that is kind of nice in my mind because it adds a tangible dimension to the problem. And so it adds an urgency to the problem, right? You can see in Florida the impact of greenhouse gases and climate change, but you can see everywhere in China the impact of particular emissions. So I think that changes the dialogue. What are we doing there? We built our first demo and our first commercial plant in China. So a real commitment from our partners in the steel sector there, where uh, in some ways the carbon reduction story was a bit of a license to operate, a license to grow, right? Sort of a realization that they needed to do something about this and they needed to find solutions to help them so they could continue to be in business. In India, we're working with IOC Indian Oil, Mm -hmm. refiner who is very focused on reducing their carbon emissions and doing something about greenhouse gases. But they're also interested in energy security and independence, right? Um, mm-hmm. making sure that they have local sources. I think you know that India just published a biofuel policy. Um, yeah. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is completely technology neutral. I'm part of a, a fuel forum, the advanced, uh, an advanced fuel forum in, in Europe, and India participates in that. We have a, a person who represents biofuel in India, and it's interesting. We asked for success stories across the globe, and India submitted the largest number. They're so focused on trying to do something and, and really pushing all technologies forward that they cited a broad range of cellulosic ethanol examples and projects that they're pushing. And the government's putting a lot of money behind this. It helps the rural economy, but it also helps everybody So, from a health perspective. So it's, it's really kind of interesting to see where people come from, but the outcome is the same. Everybody's focused on on technology neutrality and really getting technologies, new technologies out there. Last question before we close. I mean, and I would just say, I think that's kind of one of the interesting things that I think has occurred, sort of the lessons learned when you're talking about policy in in India and China is the technology neutrality. I could not say that we have that, let's say, in a, not totally anyway, in in our, you know, in the renewable fuel standard in the U.S for example, RFS2. I could argue that it does exist in some sense, but not really. But I think that um, in, in other senses, and I think the way that, I think one of the biggest lessons I think learned that I do see being repeated, and again, we can see it in this Renewable Energy Directive too. we can see it in India, we can see it in China, is this technology feedstock neutrality. That is, that's a big change because Back in the day when, when biofuels really started taking off in um, 2003, 2004, 2005, 
it really wasn't. So the, the, the policy, the types of policies have really evolved and become more uh, sophisticated, maybe not fast enough to meet the technologies, but I do see that happening. I'm wondering if you see that as well. I see a learning, right, which is what you're saying, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. A sharing, a sharing, I think that's also very important. I think everybody realizes we all need to do something about whatever the issue is, particularly helping mm-hmm. the agriculture sector, whatever we want to call the issue. Everybody has a different motivation, but everybody's willing to share. I see more and more people being willing to share information and help each other rather than, I think, 20 years ago, everybody wanted to play in their own pond and they thought they were competing. So I think what you're saying, right? Yeah, you know, uh, I think, right? I think everybody's realizing Mm -hmm. we need all solutions. We need to help each other. We aren't competing. Let let us compete 20 years from now. Let's not compete now. And I I see a lot of that and I think that's hugely important. And maybe, by the way, that's why as you cited earlier, there's optimism because when people are helping each other and working as a broader team, that energy gives you optimism. Which is important. Important for mm-hmm. sort of moving moving the ball forward, your perspective. Of, and also, it's, we are ultimately in the same pond, so we need to push the ball together. So not to, not to sound totally cliche, <laughs> but, you know, absolutely true. So, okay, well, we'll end the show there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Jennifer so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. I know you're busy, but I know the listeners will appreciate so much your views. And I'd love to have you back again as time and as developments permit. And if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com and sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.